Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. I'm going to be your host for the next 48 minutes here on the 48 Days Online Radio Podcast. You know, I enjoy every week coming to you here and scanning through the questions that come in. You know, I, don't, I know it's the beginning of a new year. I know there's a lot of things that are still kind of turbulent out there. Uh, but we have been um, overwhelmed with questions coming in and really tough, challenging questions, situations that people are in. I think in some ways... You know, the kind of downturn in the economy, the recession, whatever we want to frame it as, have been going has been going on for a couple of years now. And some people who were able to hang on for a while are have kind of run out of steam, kind of run out of resources. And so I see people who had a bigger house of cards to fall, so to speak, where it is now crumbling. Whereas those, you know, I mean, if somebody loses their job at Burger King, today. I mean, boom, they're on a street tomorrow and need to get another job like that. But if you have a real real estate construction company or an investment company or a bank or a mortgage company and thought you could weather things and now finding that that's pretty next impossible, I mean, that's a different kind of challenge. I mean, not to rank them as tougher. They're all tough. And if you make 10 bucks an hour and lose that opportunity. I know it's just as challenging to figure out what you're going to do next as if you made a million dollars last year and now you're not don't have that source anymore need to figure out what's going on. Well, we all have challenges though. I mean, I, I want to frame that right up front, the fact that uh we all have challenges in making things work well. And those who don't have any challenges financially or in their career have challenges in health and relationships and some other important areas. So life is never uh, going to get to the place where it's just all easy. So the question is simply, what are we going to do when those challenges inevitably appear? Are we ready? Do we have some deep resources ready that we can draw from? I mean, even if we talk about relationships, my gosh, I mean, I do a whole lot of things to make deposits in the emotional bank account with my wife. I mean, I just strategically, intentionally, purposely do things that I know are going to get me a whole lot of grace in the times when I need it. So if I'm making a lot of deposits there, then when I do make a withdrawal, which I obviously am going to do now and then, hopefully not too frequently, but anyway, now and then I'm going to do that. But I hope that in making a withdrawal, it doesn't bankrupt that account. Well, I want to have everything in my life kind of framed in that way so that health, I have some reserves. In my social network, I have some reserves. You know, it, financially, certainly hope that I have some reserves in other areas as well, so that it's never a matter of running on empty. And so when a challenge appears, I've have got some uh, reserves to draw on again in whether it's finances and career or in those other equally as important areas of life. Well, here are some of the questions we're going to be looking at today. Does God care where we live? Interesting question. How do I write a book when I'm citing medical textbooks? Is my life opportunity worth more than what a job will pay me? 
That's pretty cool. Um, Dan, can we share our vision to get sponsors for our ministry? Now, that taps into a whole lot of issues there that we want to have time to kind of unpeel. Um, What if your passion does not pay? Okay, now I love that question. Can't wait to get to that. How do I stand out in a sea of candidates who are all more qualified than I? All right, well, we're going to get to that. You know, there's another kind of running theme that I'm getting. I, I write a lot about opportunity, about good things happening, about expecting good things to happen, about the fact that we end up where we expect to. You know, I'm kind of one of those positive, glass half full kind of guys. I mean, all the time. Now, don't think that there aren't detractors for that. And some of you listening may question some of my optimism at times. But I do write about that a lot. But I I get a fair amount of pushback from that. People who think that I have my head buried in the sand, that I'm not being realistic about how bad things are. You know, I'm just separated from the real world out here at this point, so I don't deal with the day-to-day struggles. But even beyond that, here's a a note, and I'll just kind of uh, summarize a note that I got this week. Um, I'm happy to have a job, period. All this talk about career cruises, etc. seems extravagant, especially when we are just trying to have a roof over our head and food to eat. It seems to me that the rich can get healthy through expensive diagnostics, vitamins, supplements, etc. The rich can go on cruises and vacations and seminars to find their calling. But when do we acknowledge the Lord and thank Him for even our basic needs being met? God is much more concerned with our holiness than our happiness. Well, I'm not a theologian, but I have spent a fair amount of time trying to dissect the scriptures. And the question here implies that if you are holy, chances are you will not be happy, which I think is ludicrous theology. Now, again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it just concerns me that I keep seeing this kind of theology raise its head, where the safest thing to do is to be broke and miserable, that that's the safest place to be in terms of being holy or godly. I have a hard time figuring out what Bible they're reading to get that kind of philosophy, because I don't find it in mine. I mean, in Psalms, it says, let those who favor my righteous cause and have pleasure in my uprightness shout for joy and be glad and say continually, let the Lord be magnified. Who takes pleasure in the prosperity of his servant? Now, you know, if if we appear broke, poor, and defeated, I mean, what does that prove to other people? Is that going to prove to them that we're godly? I mean, if so, is that the kind of life that anybody's going to want to follow or emulate, be like? If we're to be salt and light, that ain't salt and light. It's not something attractive that's going to draw other people there. I mean, all it does is proves to others that we're poor, broken, defeated. And I don't think that that serves anybody well. And I think it's very dangerous to assume that that's a more godly or holy position than being well taken care of and happy and joyful. Now, here, here's another thing. Now, I, I'm going to, I'm thinking through, I'm sure I'll write on this, but I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head at this point. But 
when you are successful, now we can take this on any level. This has nothing to do with Christianity or faith or anything. When you are successful at any level, there are going to be people who try to pull you down. It just goes without saying. I tell the story about the black crabs. You're walking down the beach. You put some black crabs in a bucket. You know, one decides, hey, this isn't going to end up well. I'm going to be somebody's lunch. And he tries to get out of there, gets his arm up over the edge of the bucket. And just about as he's able to pull himself up, guess what happens? One of the others down in the bucket grabs a leg and pulls him back down in. Well, we all have those black crabs in our lives. I recognize that. You better be careful about spending too much time with them, though, because, you know, as soon as you have any kind of success at all, there are going to be others who try to pull you back down. Those of you who have left jobs, what did people say when you shared the good news that you have a little business started on the side? You're already duplicating your paycheck with that. You're going to leave and go out on your own. Did everybody say, oh, man, that's awesome. Boy, we wish you really well. I hope you make a million dollars next year. Um, if you did, it's unusual because chances are you ran into people who said, what are you thinking? You're going to walk away from a guaranteed paycheck, benefits, retirement. You got to be nuts. You know how many of those little business ideas just go up and smoke. You know, it's some smoke and mirrors on the internet. That doesn't work. You can't do that. And then you go ahead and you move on out and you do something and it is really successful. Those people say, Oh, man, you're just lucky. You just always were lucky. Well, no, you created a plan. You walked it out with your head held high, shoulders back, the confidence of having a plan and acting on it. But if if you have a hard time being disliked, you're going to have a hard time being really successful. Because as you are successful, there are going to be detractors along the way. So if your goal is to have everybody love you, then stay poor, broke, and defeated. Because the rich people feel sorry for you, and the people who are broken, defeated as well, are just going to know that you're one of them. And as we know, misery loves company. True friends celebrate with you and cheer you on when you're successful. They're going to say, oh, man, that's awesome. I, I had a guy call this afternoon. He's a guy, He's well, he's been involved in 48days.net, but he has given and given and given. He has done so many things for people the last couple of years. And I just keep seeing how willing he is to share his area of expertise. And he's very experienced in some areas. Well, he called today. He just got an opportunity that could absolutely change his financial future forever. I mean, the kind of thing that could literally produce millions of dollars for him in a short period of time. I about went through this. I couldn't sit down. I jumped out of my chair. I was so thrilled to hear it. I love stories like that. When people call me and say, hey, I just got this opportunity. I'm going to make a million dollars. Man, I mean, I, I, I'm thrilled and, 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 of course, I'm thrilled, too, for the, the times when people have said, golly, I was reading one of your books or hearing you talk or, you know, working with you on coaching that, you know, really helped me get things in line. You know, now I'm where I want to be. Last night I was at a fancy shindig connected with the Gospel Music Association Awards. They inducted uh, Johnny Cash into the Gospel Music Association Hall of Fame, and I had the p- privilege of going to that event a very it was a very cool event. Anyway, a lot of, you know, well-known people there. Trace Atkins sang a couple Johnny Cash songs. He 
is kind of been put in the position of being the modern Johnny Cash, which was interesting. But but at that event, uh, I talked to people all night long, got there about 7 o'clock, left about 11 o'clock. But I had, I had people all night long talking to me and saying, Dan, you know, I came to one of your workshops, you know, 10 years ago. Let me tell you what's happened since then. You know, Dan, I came out to the sanctuary from one of your events, and I really got focused with my writing. Now I've got three books that I published. I mean, I love those kind of stories to hear people talk about that. True friends are going to celebrate with you when you're successful. If you if your friends are criticizing and pulling you down, you need to get some new friends. You know, don't don't let anyone make you feel guilty for being successful. You need to wear your wear your blessings well. I'll work up some kind of term to describe that, but yeah, you know, just be be proud of the fact that you are blessed. That things are going well for you. I mean, that that is going to allow you to do things that maybe you've never dreamed of doing before. But don't apologize for doing well. Um, but yes, you're going to have people throwing arrows at you. No question about it. Well, let me move on. Let me, let me give you a, a quotation for the day here. This comes from Mark Twain. This is one of my son Jared's favorite quotations. I think he has it on perhaps on his business card. 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the ones you did do. So throw off the bowlines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, discover. What do you think? We'll just, we'll just leave it at 20 years from now. You'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the ones you did do. You know, when I talk to people, who are 50 years old and they you know, wrote their first book or they started their business. You know, I never heard somebody say, Oh, I wish I would have waited another five years before I did that. Never. It's always, Oh my gosh, why didn't I do this 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Now, in many cases, they weren't prepared. I mean, you, you need life experiences to prepare you for your big successes. But still, the feeling is, oh, my goodness, if I had known how good it was going to be here, I would have done it a whole lot sooner. Well, let me go to the question, Sharon, Dan, love your podcast. Part of creating the life my husband and I love would include relocating. I know you think God doesn't care where we live, but how do we reconcile that with Second Samuel 7.10, which states that God has an appointed place for his people? Thanks. Well, I had to look it up, Sharon. I don't know that by heart, but Second Samuel seven ten, in the King James Version says, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. In the contemporary English version, it says, I have given my people Israel a land of their own where they can live in peace. They won't have to tremble with fear anymore. Evil nations won't bother them as they did. Now, it appears to me pretty clearly there that uh, God is not talking about every one of us in general. He's talking about his people, Israel. Now, boy, this gets into, you know, areas of theology where I certainly am not an expert, but it appears pretty clear here that he's talking about the the children of Israel, the Jewish nation, and giving them Israel, which has happened. I mean, there's a lot of things happening there in the Middle East, 
but this seems to be relating to that. I don't take this as meaning for every single one of us. And, and even if it, even if it did say that I, I have appointed a place, I would have a hard time figuring out how that means that I need to live in Franklin, Tennessee, and uh, you need to live, where are you? I don't know where you live. I don't have that here. But anyway, <laughs> it, I, I, I really don't think that God cares where we live. Now, cares, I mean, are there better opportunities for you in certain places? Will you, will you be able to live out your life's purpose and calling better if you live in a particular area? I mean, if you're called to be a surfing instructor, then chances are God's going to want you near an ocean, you know, not living in Paducah, Kentucky. So in that sense, sure, it ought to line up with other things we know about ourselves. But when Joanna and I left Southern California years ago, we identified, I think we had five different areas that we considered. Uh, we considered going to Northern California, um, back to Ohio, obviously Tennessee was one of those, Florida. We had some pretty broadly diverse places that we listed, and then we just started going through pros and cons. And in that list, Tennessee came to the top of the list. Now, that was because it was within an easy day's drive of family, but not in the same state. That was very purposely decided. Um, we have the change of seasons, but not real harsh cold and not real killer hot. We're near a major airport. There are a lot of cultural things. There are a whole lot of things that we thought really lined up well to move here, but it had nothing to, it, it had nothing to do with job or business either. I had no idea what I was going to do when we moved back to Tennessee years ago. We just simply made a list of pros and cons that we thought fit our family well, things that would be exciting, and we just simply moved. Now, do I think that God would have blessed us less or more had we decided to go to Florida or Northern California? No, not a I've never had a fleeting thought that that would have somehow changed the degree of success or the trajectory of our lives. We just simply moved and then made things work there. I think there are a whole lot of things that have to line up that determine where we're going to be, where we're going to live. Uh, but I, I really don't think that God spends his time concerned about whether it's Columbus, Ohio, or Miami. Pedro says, big fan of yours and Dave's podcast and books. I agree now is it a great time to get into real estate? Got my California broker license last year. Have strong background in construction management and land development, 10 plus years. Do you have a couple suggestions as to how I can knock it out of the park? I'm working on monthly commercial and residential newsletters. Thanks, Pedro. Pedro, I did a quick, just a quick Google search. I put in real estate newsletters. I got 34,400,000 results. I, I don't have a real key as to how to knock it out of the park in that kind of arena. If you're going to do something, now like in any area, if you're going to do something with commercial and real, residential real estate newsletters, then you have to find what we call the USP. What is your unique selling proposition? What is it you're going to do that's not already being done well? Now, you don't have to do something that nobody ever heard of before. I mean, you can get rich just doing something 10% better or providing added value. But you're going to have to be real clear about what gives your newsletter more value than the 34 other million that are already out there. Personally, that's, there's, the, the numbers there are not very appealing to me. I would not try to do that. 
There are so many financial and real estate newsletters out there. And then to try to make it work, okay, are you going to do it free? And then hope that the readers become personal clients of yours. Are you going to give it away and hope that they attend workshops and seminars that you do? Are you going to send it out free, but then have banner ads that people are paying you for sponsors? Are you going to charge for the newsletter? If so, are you going to charge $12 a year? Or are you going to charge $50 a month? I mean, all of those are variables. And I think that's just a, I think that's a big, big arena to try to carve out a niche in. I would simply do what it is you do on the real practical nuts and bolts end. I would simply put together some, I mean, you say you have experience in construction management, land development. My gosh, I'd find a couple pieces of property this year and do the development part on that. You know, get the zoning in place, put in streets, septic lines, the kind of things you do, you know, sell the lots out, you know, and make a chunk of money. I, I would do it in that way rather than trying to move into the information arena and make money there. Now, that may contradict what you hear me say a lot because I'm a big believer in selling information. I love being an infopreneur. Uh, but in this particular case, I think it's pretty stinking challenging to do that. And I would go back to more of the basics of how you make money in real estate. Deanna says, I'm partially disabled and love to cook. Trying to get a business plan for restaurants started. Is there some way I could use my skills now, such as a cooking vlog? And if so, how would I market that aside from just posting on YouTube? Now, that I did say vlog there. I didn't stumble over blog. I mean, it simply means a blog with video. So that would be an appropriate way to have cooking information on YouTube. Um, Deanna says, I would love to sell baked goods, etc. from home, but state laws prohibit that ideas. There are a lot of ways to provide your products where it, and when you say that you're partially disabled, I don't know what that means, but if it's a hard time for you to stand up, um, I would question why you want to open a restaurant. I mean, I, I, no matter what kind of disability or limitation you have, I would think running a restaurant is going to be extremely challenging. I mean, restaurant owners are on their feet 80 hours a week. You know, doing hard physical work and trying to smile while doing it and dealing with a whole lot of issues. I think there are opportunities to take your restaurant or culinary skills and make money in other ways. And I have a friend here in Nashville who, after going through an unexpected divorce, kind of took stock of what she was able to do to earn a living, had children at home at the time, and she really wasn't a candidate for anything much then other than a eight or ten dollar an hour job but she remembered how much people enjoyed her cheesecakes when they would go to family reunions and different kind of social events and she built her little idea around just making great cheesecakes now she does about half a million dollars a year in selling cheesecakes she does not have a restaurant and I've cautioned her against doing that. She has a little commercial kitchen where she has about three faithful ladies that show up and they help her make brownies and cheesecakes and pastries. And they go out of there in pallets and go to local restaurants and to some of the big chain grocery stores. Very successful business. She paid for her house. She paid for her new Lexus and a lot of other things as a result of doing that. 
Now, she did not do that in her home, and you're right. It's going to be hard to really expand much in your home, but you can lease time. I mean, you can you can contract with a commercial kitchen where you use it six hours a week to get you started. I mean, and it would be reasonable to do something in that amount of time. There are other ways just to use your skill. There's a, there's a lady, um, we've had her here, had her come here one time. She offered to come here and cater an event that we had we had about 75 people here and she came and fixed us an italian meal it was wild it was an experience we'll never forget Uh, joanne swears she is still wiping tomato sauce off the ceiling and cupboards in our kitchen because rosalie harpool came in and fixed a meal for us wanting then to use the brain power of that group to tell her how to leverage her business. Well, she had done already at that time a beautiful cookbook. Now, you can find her if you go to Rosalie, R-O-S-A-L-I-E, Rosalie Serving Italian. That's the brand that she uses, and you can go there, Google that, Rosalie Serving Italian. You're going to go right to her site. But she's she's a delightful lady, and we gave her a whole bunch of ideas as to how to leverage. So she speaks, and she does workshops and seminars, and she sells her cookbook, and she does, you know, where she will show up and prepare the meals for you. But she's leveraged that into eight or ten different ways that she's making money. And I would encourage you to do those rather than trying to open a restaurant, which I would be at the bottom of my list for the situation that you've described. Brian says, Dan, I'm currently working as a physician assistant. There's an initial licensing exam, plus you must retake the exam every six years. I'm thinking of writing an online review book course for these exams. I would have to pull the information from several medical textbooks. How do I cite them? Do I need to? Yeah, this is a real, I mean, this is a real dicey area, Brian. When you say that you're going to pull the information from, I mean, you cannot pull the information in any way where it's word for word from a medical textbook. That is plagiarism, and you'll get your hand slapped and more real quickly in doing that. Now, can you take information that's readily available to other people, compile it in a fun, informative way, and direct people to those resources? Yeah, you can do that. There's a guy out there, Matthew Lesko, L-E-S-K-O, who has made millions by selling information about how to get government money, how to get government grants, and so on. Now, the information is readily available, but most people don't really know where to go to get it. So he's put together his books that tell you where to go to find government grants and resources and has made a lot of money in doing so. Now, here's some quick guidelines for what you're describing with your writing. You, you can't just take, you know, information from another book. I mean, no way. Now, I use a lot of quotations in my writing. You'll see that I use quotations or call outs or little anecdotes or something about every 250 words. That makes for easier reading. If it's just words, 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 just text after text, you know, unless it's fiction, that's pretty hard to keep people engaged in that kind of reading. So, yeah, you're wise to be referring to other things and you can you can use a short quotation and then just footnote it and you can footnote at the bottom of each page or at the end of the chapter or at the end of your entire book. Footnotes can be used in a variety of ways. That's fine. So you're pretty safe in using you know, other material if you just simply footnote it. But even there, if the length is pretty excessive, I mean, if you use, 
if you use what would be half a page, I'll just, without going into the number count, just if you use what would be half a page, then you really need to get permission from the source that you're citing. Not just even footnoting it, but permission. That's going to be a nightmare for you to do that. So you better be prepared to write the information and you can do that. I mean, if you're writing information for the online, um, you know, the exams that physician assistants have to, you can write that in your own words. And you can even say, I mean, I, I may be rewriting something that I say in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, Stephen Covey talked about the idea that you need to sharpen your saw in before you begin. And then I can talk about Abraham Lincoln said, if I have six hours to cut down a tree, I'm going to spend four hours sharpening my axe. I mean, I can, I can talk about things like that. You put it in my own words and you can do the same. But don't pull sections from medical textbooks and put it into your own content. It'll get you in trouble. Anita says, my problem is that after a full day at the office, coming home and taking care of my one-year-old, I don't have the energy left to start picking up my freelance projects. I literally crash into bed at nine o'clock. I'm really fed up with my J-O-B and one out. How do I re-energize without taking time away from my baby? Well, here's what I recommend, Anita. I recommend you create a transition plan. I mean, that's why I'm so big on talking about 48 days. I don't want it to be something that you have one foot over the, you know, on both sides of the fence, you know, for a year. That'll drain you, exhaust you, and damage the time, you know, with your little baby that you're talking about. At one year old, that baby needs lots of time and attention, but... Could you create a plan that you could make a move in 48 days? Yes. Now, you can make a plan to do that. Now, you have to be convinced it's a realistic plan. When you talk about freelance projects, let's just say, and I don't know what you do, but let's say that you are a graphic designer. So you are working a regular J-O-B right now, and you're making $15 an hour in what you're doing. And you've got some freelance projects, but as a freelance graphic designer, you ought to be billing somewhere between 40 and $75 an hour. I have a, a young guy right now, I've got three different projects he's working on, and he bills me at $75 an hour for those. He's doing design just to dress up things like eBooks and book proposals and things where it's not even a requirement, but I just like to make them look nice. So he bills me at $75 an hour. So let's say that you're making $15 an hour in your regular job, but you're doing freelance projects and you're billing at $40 an hour. Well, you can do the math on that. How many hours would you have to have work to do if you're at $40 an hour to overcome the income that you're getting at $15 an hour? We'll just map that out. Okay, what would it take for you to do that? So you strategically look at what would it take to allow you to make a complete switch? Are there new prospects you can go after? Are there people that you can market to? Who is your target audience? So just structure the business plan for your freelance projects and see that as your best way to get out of the, the job where you could then get up at nine o'clock when your one-year-old gets up and play in the morning and at 10 o'clock, then you jump into a couple projects. Now, what you're going to find real quickly here too is on freelance projects, you don't want to bid those by the hour. You want to bid them by the project. I mean, I, I mean, I encourage anybody 
you know, don't get trapped in bidding by the hour. If you're going to do a book cover for somebody and you know that you're really good and it's only going to take you two hours to do that, you know, don't bid two hours, bid the job at $450 if you think that's reasonable. Bid the project. And then if it takes you two hours, so be it. That's to your benefit to do that. So you want to quickly move out of doing any hourly or per diem work if you're going to do freelance work anyway. But you got to get clear on what that plan is going to be. Create a transition plan. I tell people that if you're working on something on the side, if you can see a clear transition between three and six months, then you're on track with the real idea. If you can't see that anyway, then maybe you just need to get a better job. Maybe you just need to get a job that's not so exhausting, one that would give you flex time, or one where you can negotiate uh, some of the work, doing some of the work from home. I mean, not unusual at all. Make it something where it's a win-win for your desire to care for your baby, as well as creating income for your home. Ben says, now this is interesting. He says, Dan, how, is, how much is my opportunity worth? I recently graduated in December and my current employer has offered me a permanent position. I don't mind the work, but I do feel that there's a lot more opportunity out there. Should I take the safe road or should I take the risk and venture out on my own? Well, oh man, I, I mean, I, I, I love the way you frame this. But I think it's really telling as to what you're thinking is, should I take the safe road, meaning take the job or take the risk and venture out on my own? Well, let's kind of you know, strip those away real quick. The safe route in taking a job, you may not have a job 90 days from now. I mean, there's no guarantees just because it's called a job that it's going to be around or that they're going to be able to pay you what they agreed to on the front end or that you're going to stay there for 30 years and get a gold watch. I mean, none of that is guaranteed. There's no security in that kind of a traditional job these days. In many ways, I think uh, that's a big risk to do that and not have something going where you're in the driver's seat. In Thomas Stanley's book, The Millionaire Mind, he talked about that at length and talked about the mindset that people who ended up extremely wealthy have. They see going to work in the morning, even if it is something that lines up with your skills and abilities, degrees and all that. You go to work and hope for a paycheck at the end of the week and you're in a position where one person can put you on the street this afternoon. They see that as extremely risky. They see doing something that you know you do well, where you create a plan of action, put legs on that plan of action and do it, they see that as where security occurs. Nobody can push you out of that. I mean, if you're working for uh, the man down here at the office, yeah, one person, it may be a supervisor, division leader, or the CEO of the company. But anyway, along the line, there's multiple people, any one of which could put you on the street this afternoon. Chances are. If you've got a hot dog stand and you're down on 2nd Avenue in Nashville, Tennessee, and you've got 273 people that come by every day and buy your hot dogs, you have to have 273 people decide not to do business with you anymore to put you out of business or on the street. That's a whole lot different. Well, that's the way entrepreneurs see safe security and risk. Now, let me go back to your original question because you're going to be surprised at the direction I go in this. I recently graduated in December. My current employer has offered me a permanent position. Well, Ben, here's, here's what I would encourage you to do. If the work lines up with your degree and what you want to do, I encourage you to take the position. But I also encourage you to begin immediately to plan where you want to be three years from now. 
what does that look like? But, I mean, some of the best business trainers out there will tell you, if you want, as an example, if you want to open your own restaurant, I would encourage you to today go get a job in a restaurant. Learn on their nickel. Watch what they're doing. Learn how to control inventory. Learn how to deal with workman's comp and employees that don't show up. Learn how to uh, cover spoilage and loss in your food. I mean, but learn on somebody else's nickel. That's a very legitimate way to get ready to run your own business. If you just graduated from college, I question whether you're ready to venture out on your own. I mean, you'd have to be really clear on all the details of running a business to pull that off well. My own son-in-law, Nathan, just came to work for us at 48 Days about two months ago. He graduated after marrying my daughter graduated from Belmont University. He went to work for BB&T Bank. He moved up through their training programs, uh, became a branch manager, and then moved up from there. He was with them for five years. All along that time, we were talking about the day when he would come to work for 48 days, but I wanted him to stay there. My goodness, to work for a big commercial bank. He was making million dollar loans to people and looking at their businesses and seeing why businesses didn't work well. I wanted him to get that education. I could care less about his college degree. He got a degree in communications, but I wanted the experience he was getting in working in that real life business. Now he's a great candidate to come in here and has a lot to offer us. Now, believe me, he didn't come in here with a J-O-B. You can rest assured we didn't structure it that way. He's got his own business now, and he invoices 48 days for the work that he and Ashley do. So it's not set up as a job, but his positioning now is way stronger than what he could have offered just coming out of college. So, yeah, I encourage you, if it fits with your degree and where you want to go, go ahead. Take the job. It'll be time well spent. Robbie says, I've been unemployed for a couple months now after working for a large corporation. I want so much to start my own business. I'll be 50 next month. I feel like if I'm going to make this change in my life, now's the time to do it. Uh, while trying to figure out what kind of business I want to go into, I've been asked by someone who used to work at the same corporation with me, uh, to, and he's now started his own business to do some work for him. His business is just in the startup phase. I would be doing sales. I don't have much experience in sales, but I've read and also think it's a great thing to learn think this would be a good thing to do while I'm working on my own. My question is, how do I learn sales in this business that I'll be doing? It would be mostly cold calling. I'm having a hard time figuring out how to find the name of the people at the site I need to talk to. So I know this is a lot of info. I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm a desperate point in my life. I have my home for sale. Hopefully won't lose it. Can't stand the thought of going back to the corporate workforce. Well, don't assume that sales will just happen just because you have that position. I really don't like the sound of what you're getting ready to do here. I believe in sales absolutely 110%. I think that we all ought to be experienced in sales. And if you're not comfortable with selling, you're going to struggle with mediocrity in a whole lot of areas in your life. So yes, I believe it's important. Yes, I believe you can learn it. But you can't just align yourself with a company where they say, hey, go out there, you know, start knocking on doors. You have to make sure that the kind of selling you're being asked to do lines up with what you know about yourself. Does it fit you? Does it fit your personality? 
are you real outgoing, assertive, aggressive, social, that kind of person? If you are, then I don't think you'd find sales so foreign to you at 50 years old. I really highly suspect that that kind of selling is not going to fit you if you haven't had exposure to it already at 50 years old. So I suspect that you may be someone who is more logical, analytical, detail-oriented, you know, nurturing, good listener, compassionate, loyal. I mean, those are great skills, but those don't line up with something that requires cold calling and selling. You may be a candidate to sell MRI machines to hospitals where you only have, you know, 20 possibilities in your entire state and you're going to be dealing with purchasing agents or chief financial officers. That's a very different kind of selling process than just cold calling for a small business where you may be expected to to talk to 30 new people every single day to make that work. So you got to make sure the kind of selling lines up with what you know about yourself. I encourage you to get involved in the Relationship Sales 101 group that's on 48days.net. Now, I don't know if you remember there, but if you're not, jump in there, 48days.net, no cost, just get involved. That group, Relationship Sales 101, is Pierce Mars' group, and you can learn from that group very quickly what kind of selling you would be a candidate for. Betsy says, I'm so excited to read your book. I just picked it up for my husband and myself. He's just given his notice as a job. We've committed to him being off the month of January to pray and think about where we, he will go next. This year, we followed God's lead and started a ministry using our horses. While in prayer earlier this year for this ministry, God gave my husband a vision for something bigger, a working ranch where we can do camps, day activities, but also a place where a family or couple can come stay for a while to be away from life and work in their marriage or reconnect or recharge. We don't have a place at this time. However, we're in eager anticipation of when what and how God will lead in growing this ministry. So this leads to my question. Instead of sending out resumes, would we be sending out our vision and approaching possible partners and sponsors? He may return to a job to help support this ministry, but we are wanting to know God's leading. He's very committed to providing for his family, but we have been feeling for a long time that God was leading us elsewhere. We're just not sure where. All right, Betsy, I'm going to give you a very short answer to a very big question. I appreciate your question and your heart in this. If you want to provide a place for people to come to be restored, to be re-energized, you want to have camps, day activities, allow families and couples to come there, your question assumes that you have to provide that for free. Why would you provide that for free? There's no rationale for thinking that has to be free. I mean, even if it's hurting people, I mean, trust me, I mean, my, my biggest client base with people that I work with now in my personal coaching is pastors who are bleeding desperately and needing help. Because of that, do I work with them free? No, they write me very large checks for me to help them get their life back in balance and move forward with confidence. It, I mean, paying for services provided allows a person to feel like they've invested in the process. I mean, Dave Ramsey and I talk about this a lot and Dave does not allow people. Now you'll hear him once in a while on the air say, I'm going to give you financial peace. But when he has churches say, well, we're just going to put this in our budget. So, you know, we can have a hundred people in our church go through it free. He says, no, don't do that. It counteracts. It goes against the very principles he's trying to teach. People will act on something a whole lot more if they've invested in the process. 
So sending out your vision to other people to hope that they're going to be excited about what you're doing and give to it is likely to be a very frustrating experience. I mean, chances are really slim that enough other people are going to be passionate enough about what you're doing that they would agree to fund it. I mean, if they feel that strongly about the idea, why wouldn't they just do it themselves? I encourage you to do exactly what you're talking about and figure out how is this a real business? How can we do this? How can we have a ranch? How can we provide the workshops and seminars and the invigorating experiences that we want to provide for people and have them pay for it? Everything that I do, I could justify trying to figure out how to do it as a ministry in the traditional sense, meaning that I'm going to give it to the recipients. Yeah, I could make a case for that. And I do. I want to stay as far away from that as possible. Because I see the results of people investing in the process. I mean, we just had a coaching with excellence event here. I mean, people came from Florida and from California. I mean, made big sacrifices. One guy drove across the country from Nebraska, slept in his car, you know, just so he could be here. What are the chances that he's going to really act on what he learned while being here? Extremely high. He's that motivated. He has some skin in the game. He is invested in the process. I love your idea. I don't think you should try to do it by getting somebody on the outside to fund it so you can provide it free for the people who need it. Have the people who need it pay and everybody will win. Well, here I'm going to have, man, I'm going to have about one more here. Okay. Let me take this one. This comes from Elena. Dan, I was just reading your book earlier today, and I was wondering about the theme that kept resonating. Do what you love and find your passion. Since I'm a senior in college, thoughts about my future career and life paths are flowing through my head all day long. While I completely agree with this statement, think that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I have to ask the question of whether this is always financially viable. For instance, many people are turned away from careers in the arts because it's really not a means of making a living. Okay, so to sum it up, my question is, what if your passion does not pay? And without making a comfortable living, you cannot do the things that also make you happy in life, like affording to travel to family, enjoy time off with friends, family. I was just wondering about this issue, and is it something that racks my, it's something that racks my brain daily? I'm sure you've had similar thoughts on this topic. Yeah, this is something that comes up about 3,000 times a day. Elena, great question. But when we look at this, a lot of people are turned away from careers in the arts because it's really not a means of making a living. Okay, so we know that all artists are starving. Well, I know a whole lot of artists who have knocked it out of the park with their art. I know sculptors who have knocked it out of the park. The lady who does the wood sculptures on my property that you see on our websites, Aristotle out front and over on a, near our house, I mean, she's not exactly starving doing that. Her work is amazing. I mean, there's nothing you can name but what I believe that you can make a living doing that. Now, could I make a living as an artist? No, I'd be one of those starving artists because that's not my passion. But if that is my passion, can I figure out how to make a living doing it? Absolutely. Now, here's what we run into a lot of times. People know what their passion is, but then they don't take the time to create a business plan. What is that going to look like? How could I make money with this? They think, well, if it's my passion, then it just either happens or it doesn't. No, you're going to end up living in a cardboard box under the bridge, if that's true. See, the, the things that I do, counseling, 
golly, how many, how many wealthy counselors did you, do you know? No, it's a very, very low income vocation for the most part. Most coaches, I mean, we're told that 85% of people who are life coaches never make more than $40,000 a year. Authors, I mean, the world has millions of authors who are never going to make $5,000 a year from their writing. A lot of well-known Christian authors are not going to make $5,000 from their next release. Names who you'd recognize, the numbers are that poor. Why did I choose coaching and writing as the things I want to do when I have pretty aggressive financial goals. It's because I didn't just do those things and look at the statistics and say, everybody who's a writer, you know, starves, coaches don't make any money. They make $40,000 a year. I put together a plan. What do I want this to look like for me? And it puts me in an income category, you know, that's in, well, I won't say the percentages, but there aren't many people in the world in terms of percentages that produce the income that I'm able to enjoy. Not because it's common to make money as an author or as a coach, but because I combined those passions with real plans for how I was going to do that. Hey, you can do the same. Don't walk away from your passions because you've bought into this myth that people in the arts don't make any money. That's ludicrous. I mean, last night, you know, talking to Trace Atkins, golly, he's about six, seven or eight. I mean, he's extremely tall. You stand there, strainer in your neck. I mean, he's just an old country bumpkin, but he's got that deep voice and he has leveraged that into some uh, pretty significant income. Now, is that, you know, the common thing for people that come to Nashville? Maybe not average, but if he figured out how to do that and put that together with a way that could make it work, boy, I mean, you're, you're better off. I mean, I, I would get more excited helping you figure out how to grow dandelions, if that's your passion, than trying to help you figure out how to do the next IPO for the dot-com business where we're going to raise $10 million in capital. No, do what you're passionate about. Oh, yeah, we can figure out how to turn that into income. You can make money in the arts, no matter what it is. If it's music, dancing on your tippy toes, I don't care what it is. Create a plan of action to go with it. You'll be amazed at the results. The combination of your passion will give you the fuel that you need to make a business plan work. Well, thanks for being our listeners. Jump on the group that's at 48days.net. See what's happening there as you continue to find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Hey, this is Dan Miller, your host. Have a great week.